0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.
1: We have half an hour now to perhaps go through um, what we've learnt so far. Uh, Would anybody like to either ask any of the... It was rushed. We know it was rushed. So if anybody wants one of the speakers to unpack what they were talking about a bit more, by all means say so. Um, And if anybody wants to actually start commenting on what they've said... Please do so. Do I see, Lisa, I see a hand up there at the back. Um, uh, remember your name and your institution, please.
2: Hi, my name is Melanie Butler, and I'm a journalist working in language education. And like Philida, I was a migrant kid. So I had the experience of being thrown into French school with French children when my parents didn't speak French and having to survive. What strikes me, listening to all of you, is that... Um, uh, The longitudinal studies don't seem to support much of what is being said. I mean, the EPI study, which has been following children, I think, since... Well, they're now 14, found that non-native speakers going into primary schools are at the same level as native speakers by the age of 14 on average there may well be a distinction between those coming from non-literate families and literate families, and there may well be a distinction between the closeness of their language to the target language, which is something that wasn't looked at, and also gender wasn't looked at. We know that the worst performing uh, native speakers are uh, white working class boys, Afro-Caribbean working class boys, both of whom are native speakers. Um, And yet... I don't, you know, they weren't a controlled force. So I'm I'm kind of worried that all of this is, there's a big evidence base it exists uh, uh, in early years learning, particularly, and it doesn't seem to be being heard. I do agree, actually, just as a comment, that uh, teaching academic English within a primary school setting is good, but it's equally good for white working class boys and black Afro Caribbean boys, and the question should not be really, "What is your first language?" Philidor is bilingual. I speak four languages. I'm not bilingual in any of them. It hasn't really done us any harm.
1: Would, do you want to come back, Yeah, the, on that? yeah I wasn't
3: saying that being bilingual is, <laughs> does you any harm. I think, you know, I wouldn't be here if I couldn't speak English reasonably well. Um, I, I think you're right. I mean, research studies show all this stuff. And yet, we walk into FE colleges where a lot of the, you know, the the 16, the 14 and up students come who haven't done so well. So maybe my perspective is out of sync. But what I I don't see the odd um, student who can't function and wh- whose English lack of English language or sufficient command of English language enables them to do what they want to do. And for me, it is you know it is a serious problem and you know people often say well they've got they got a GCSE and you think yeah they got a GCSE but that doesn't necessarily mean they can actually use the language in their own right for the purpose and in the context that they operate in so i've still got questions about you know how all these measures are you know come alive because a lot of the GCSE scores you know you think what, what do they really mean? You know what, Do they really sign people off as, as you know they're okay to use the language?: Does
1: anybody here know anything about the epi study? If we're going to stay on that for a moment. Um, I, I've got another, I've got a hand down here at the front. Um, can we come, come back to you perhaps a little later on?:
4: Hello, I'm Francis Wilson from Cambridge Assessment. And what I think has been really interesting is that when we're talking about non-native speakers, we're actually talking about very different groups because we know that the research from language acquisition is that if you start really focusing on your second language, say at the age of five when you enter primary school, the ultimate attainment that you'll reach is far higher than what you get if you start maybe post-puberty. But then on the other hand, if you're talking post-puberty, then you've got all these different sort of cognitive advantages that you can... Sort of use from these bilinguals. For example, it's well known that bilinguals, just because they've got two different languages and have this experience of functioning in two different languages, have much better metalinguistic awareness than monolingual children of that of the same age and same same sort of languages. So I'm just wondering whether we should be thinking about the specific properties. That we know that bilingual children have. Yeah, that They do have these better metalinguistic skills. They also have other advantages in things like social cognition and executive function. So how can we actually sort of harness these advantages that these children bring to the task of language learning and indeed their whole academic development?
1: Sorry, are you, you were suggesting that some people have an innate language ability? We look for why here or something.
4: Well... I would argue everybody has an innate language ability. Right. Um, but if you start earlier, then ultimate attainment is higher. So maybe we should be focusing on th- what happens at an early age more strongly, because that's when we can really make the most difference.
1: I think the challenge, and I'd like to hear from some of the teachers in the, in the room, I mean, the challenge is sometimes you're, you're just given the pupils. You know, Fourteen people arrive from Afghanistan age 14. Uh, and that That's it. You, you have no choice. You have no uh, starting point. You're just... They're thrown into your classroom. You just have to deal with them along with everybody else. So, yes, down here at the front. I think I see the
0: hand over there somewhere. Hi, I'm Simon Walton from Forsmouth College. Um, as you just said, um, 14 people may arrive from Afghanistan, and um, the teachers got to deal with that. Now, in the past, we had EMAS. is now EMAG organisation. That's and they actually allowed. Uh, um, educational establishments to, act, to create a class for them, especially. And um, that was taken away from us. And I believe that this over 200 million pounds that is now given to the schools and give them sort of um, free hand to spend it as they wish, it hasn't done any good for um, speakers of other languages at schools because uh, they are now... Um, in a way, if I can use this word, sort of forced to stay within the school premises and join a number of, I mean, year 10 and 11, especially I'm talking about, that I used to teach. um, And um, our college used to deal with them. And they were successful. They were um, progressing. And they could even go to mainstream courses. They cannot. And they are now forced to stay at schools. And um, they are demoralized by the time they come to us they have not achieved um, a single GCSE, and um, they hate education. They actually don't like British. They don't like anything about living here. They've just been completely sort of um, ruined, if you like, as a human being, And then we have to pick up from there. And I deal with that sort of year in, year out. And um, I think that is a very important issue it needs to be looked at. Thank you. All right. Here's
1: I, yes, I thought I saw a lady there and then a gentleman here near the front, uh, about
5: halfway. Um, I'm Stella Neal from Slough Grammar School. I um, taught EFL before I went into mainstream education um, and the contrast that I've noticed teaching A-level, and I'm interested in A-level literacy for EAL pupils, is that it's very easy to generate enthusiasm within an EFL classroom because you have people all in there knowing that they're learning language for a reason. My observation with my A-level students is that they don't always have the same confidence that then builds on itself for building vocabulary and using English at that high academic level. They they don't speak as much as as the people who are non-EAL, and they just struggle to find the enthusiasm for the building. They want it they're just not confident enough to practice it and I think we need to do quite a lot of work at the A level end of things as well as all the colleges and and the other places that people go because I'd be interested if any of the panel have got attainment figures on post school Um, because my my and it's only observation my observation is that they regress a bit after um, GCSE
1: Mm -hmm. this gentleman here
6: Thank you. Uh, Constant Learn King's College, London. Um, I wanted to go back to the question on uh, the, the kind of data we're looking at. Uh, I think it's very important to remember that uh, the kind of data we have uh, would depend on the way we define the categories. So, for example, if you look at the um, OECD data, the PISA data, uh, where they go into... Uh, a distinction between first generation and second generation migrant background uh, students, then you will see that there's data to show that across the EU, there's quite a clear picture of people who are of migrant background, whether first or second generation, would, si- would still be performing below the national average. And going back to the question of British data, Uh, I think we saw a definition of what counts as EAL or bilingual pupils at the beginning of this afternoon's discussion. If we use a very loose definition of saying, defining anybody who's a non-native English speaker as whose first language, uh, whose first experience in life is in a language other than English, but doesn't say how long and what happens to them afterwards, there are very many number of us here in this room who look... uh, Maybe of minority background, but may have actually an English-dominant experience, despite our first years of experience in another language. So we need to be extremely careful with these official statistics. Thank you.
1: Thanks very much. I tend to work on the principle. There's so many that actually things like that probably get washed out. <laughs> yes. But you're, you're right. This lady first, and then the gentleman behind you.
7: Um, Alice Robinson, I'm actually here representing my teaching association. Uh, one of the, the issues I want to pick up on um, that I think is very important from feedback from our members is around um, children who are from second and third generation um, communities where the first language in that community is not English. And uh, I think that, you know, one of the things we have picked up on, again, and a second aspect to that is gender, in terms of girls within those communities tend to have very very little access to english outside the school grounds and that that directly then has an a, an impact on their attainment but also along lines of aspiration as well and parental expectation of what will happen within the gender group so I think there's there's a lot of work to be done there but I also have a worry of course around or, or my association has a worry around um, the definitions used in academically but also the, the, compared to the definitions used by uh, the government in defining English as a second language and third generation do not qualify, they're deemed to have been in the country and therefore their results are taken as those for English speakers so there's a whole raft of issues around there around um, how league tables and I'm sorry this is a real issue for for many of us in this room because league tables drive to a certain extent what happens Um, so I, I, I would like a
5: response
1: anybody can take this. I, this. This is a debate. I mean, it's not really questions and answers. I'll, I'll come. If anybody from the panel wishes to catch up and say anything, just nudge your, your uh, microphone because that's the only way I can see from that angle. Do you no, want to come in here? No, yeah, can I yeah, just address
8: sure. that? Um, we, we're, we're very much in our situation that um, we are, our pupils, 8, 8% of our pupils are from Pakistani backgrounds, um, so they are second or third generation, born here, Um but don't start learning English until reception or, or um, nursery, um, and essentially our, our our community doesn't doesn't accept that, that that should hold them back. That you know, that it, and it also doesn't accept that it should take seven to ten years for them to catch up. Um, our community want their their the young people to be going to university, top universities with A's and A stars at GCSE and A level, going into medicine, pharmacy, dentistry, all that kind of thing. So. Um, we're in a position at the moment that we're just about to sponsor our, our feeder primary as an academy, so we're going to sort of get our hands on them a bit earlier. Um, so so we, I, I absolutely agree we need to start you know, as early as possible, but I, don't, I, I know that uh, the government may see a distinction and there may be delicacies over how you define an AAL pupil, but essentially we're not, we're not going to be in a position to say because they're AAL they're only going to achieve at at a ceiling you know we want to take them as as far as they possibly can so we in in a way that's a moot point you know our community won't be happy unless our pupils are getting those top top grades so that that's the 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 sort of first of our work and in, in in a sense that that definition's a bit moot we we have to we have to recognize that that they are coming to primary school and just learning english and we have to do what we can to get them to catch up as
9: quickly as
1: possible.
9: We need to sort of break that, that seven to ten-year cycle. Um, uh, right. Sorry. Uh, that, the gentleman there. Okay. <coughs> Thanks, Adam Lambert. Um, I think we need to move away taking EL as disadvantage. Uh, EL is not a disadvantage. If you go to Lambert or Town Hamlet, a number of inner London... One of the reasons why those local authorities are fast improving because they have large number of EL children. They actually do very well in schools. I think it really we need to move away from negative stereotypes about EL children. I think that's not what I've really observed. I really think I want to ask one really important question. I think one of the problems in this country, why we don't really support with English language L children is I don't think any government have seen a very clear policy in terms of raising achievement of L children. Research in United Kingdom and the U.S. actually show it takes minimum five to seven years to be fully fluent in English. What the implication is, we really need to fund schools and local authority for five, seven years. The new funding, actually, uh, um, consultation, are really cutting down to three years. It's so impossible for a school actually to help children to be fluent in English in three years. I really want to ask what really the implication of the funding cut in terms of raising achievement of early children in school.
1: Good question. Um, I've now, yeah. Karen Fairfax Chumley. Um, she's put in a uh, a point. Just, do you want to make it yourself, Karen, or would you like me to read it out? I'm quite happy. Sorry. Yes, of course. Um, many schools in the UK uh, now have children from a variety of linguistic backgrounds, so there's as many as fifty different languages, maybe. Uh, spoken yes that could be spoken maybe spoken uh, by children in schools actually interestingly enough I I wanted to move on to this uh, so I'm glad we've we've got this under the circumstances can it be practical to argue for bilingual, bilingual learning in the classroom research shows that parental involvement is one of the most important elements in children's achievement so how can schools and we're back to this thing that schools are responsible for everything again how does schools ensure that families are included in maintaining language in the, in the formal <coughs> learning process? Now, somebody mentioned how families... Your, your, your definition of how you were driving... Sorry, Lee's definition of how you were driving up the people you were to focusing on were those people who were A, EAL, and B, not supported by families. Yeah. Um, in, the form, in the formal sense. What do, you, what, what do you actually do?
8: But they're, they're to very, encourage them to help? they're very supported in terms of aspirations, yes. but not the, the parents don't necessarily have the skills in, in English to, to support. So yeah, we you know we have a, a, a huge challenge in that respect, and I and I agree with the gentleman so we need to get away from that idea of a deficit model. You know, we, we we don't see it as a deficit; we see it as, as something we have a responsibility to do something about. And and I know there's this kind of. Problem with schools are responsible for everything, but if no, they don't get it at school, where are they going to get it? So we, you know, we, we take our responsibility very seriously. Um, we we run run parent classes uh, in English, like lots of other schools do, um, and uh, we're just at the moment beginning a conversation about how do we how do we create a culture at the school where you come to Parkview and, and you wear your tie straight, and you come to Parkview and you do your homework, you come to Parkview and you read. So we, we, you know, how, how can we create that reading culture both inside school? And outside of school, and it, it, it's talking to the parents about you may not be able to sit there and read with the child, but you can make sure that they sit down and read it, and they complete the exercises that we give them. So, so there are things that schools can do, but it's it, of course it's a very difficult difficult area. I
1: saw a number of hands go. Right the way back, coming in from uh, our online
9: audience. We've got a question from Tuba Bauhofer, who's head of EAL at a school somewhere in the country. She says putting EAL students in the bottom set to avoid differentiation doesn't help with their self-esteem and aspiration. And I think that question is directed at Philida, particularly.
3: Uh, Yeah, I'd I'd really agree with that. In fact, I don't see EAL as a problem. I just think we've got to provide the measures and the interventions that help people thrive. And I've you know, i just given my take on where I think actually looking at language itself can help students improve their language. And once they get more fluent and get more confident, of course, you do get that cycle where they can actually use the language in their own right. So yes, I, I'll be the last person to say they should be in the bottom set. In fact, it upsets me to go into FE colleges where you see Oxbridge material mm. sitting there and because they haven't got the language to express themselves no. they are stuck yeah. and that's not good for them as individuals but I think for, for society as a whole I think it's a tragedy You know, that life could be so much better if we really had you know, enabled children and young people to really acquire that language so they can just use it as a tool and get on and do what they want to do
1: well, this, is, this is, of course, why, we're, why we're, we're doing this debate in the first place. I mean, I find it fascinating that there are so many confounding variables. You saw Laura say, actually, one of the kids needed some glasses. Once you would actually identified that, um, a, whole, a whole new uh, area opened up for them. Um, I, just dragging on two or three things that people have said here, is there some kind of sense in the audience that people that EAL students, uh, particularly older ones, should be taken outside of mainstream learning, given English, just English classes, yeah. to grasp English before putting them into mainstream. Because I know there's a very strong argument that lots of other people have used, which is put them into history, English, geography, and learn as they go. Uh, is, that, is that a genuine split? Is that, do people have various views on this? Would you would you like to start? Because you were very clear that yeah. you thought deliver English, then put them in. But that's talking about the older people, isn't it? The older students, year ten and eleven. Basically. Yeah, 10 and 11. So, oh. sorry. Uh, yes. Ha- sorry. Do oh, you want a me to just one, yes.
0: okay? Just year ten and eleven. We yeah. used to have this opportunity yeah. to actually create classes for them, and um, so it was a huge cooperation between the schools and the colleges. Yeah. And that has taken away from us. And of course, um, due to funding, nobody likes to let funding go, so they remain at schools and they um, a lot, quite a few of them um, don't achieve anything no GCSEs whatsoever and then when they finish with them at the age of 16 then they come to us and uh, yes. it's a lot of issues
1: there. Okay, so lady just two behind yes, and then that lady over
4: there Um, Greer Royal High School um, I think that there is an argument for um, teaching discreetly the English language skills that you're talking about. Um, but I don't think that we can just forget all the other um, opportunities that they could then have to take that knowledge and go and use it immediately in the other subjects that they're learning. So um, I think a happy medium or finding some kind of middle
1: ground <laughs> yeah. is what we want. Yeah. Right, that, that, that's got forest of hands going there. there. And then to to uh, Laura at the front. Yeah, sorry, the lady in the head's gone. Hey, Jan, I'm not sure.
5: um, I think uh, one of the important things about language learning is repetition. And I think if you take people out, you've still got to have the repetition. And I think one of the most important ways that you can reinforce um, language learning is if teachers in their AFL... Um, are able to pick up and give feedback on English language problems and they don't shy away from it. And one of your panels said that that some teachers um, have have lost their confidence in their own language construction. And I think unless you start picking it up when you're marking books... If you can regularly see the same problems, relative clauses, whatever it is they're not using, and just run a little clinic at the end of one of your lessons on how to use relative clauses in A-level essays or whatever problem you detect, then it does the reinforcement in the subject lesson because at the end of the day we want them to learn it, to talk about subjects academically. And, And yes, I think if you have... Someone who is really struggling with the absolute basics, you have to teach them. But I don't think they'll learn anything that way. I think they have to learn it in an applied way, day after day, five lessons a day. And I'm sure none of us want to sit there spending longer marking books. But with more targeted bookmarking, I think we could make quite a big impact on the subject quite quickly.
1: Okay. Uh, I just want to pick up Laura and then this gentleman at the end of that line there.
10: Hi, um, I'm Laura. That was my pupils that you saw, who were the secondary pupils in the video earlier. I think there are medium ways that you can do this, because I absolutely agree that teachers have got to take some responsibility and get good at this, but I also think it's a hugely overwhelming experience if you've come from another country, and I'm talking specifically about students who have arrived usually older, year nine, I mean even year eight probably and above, who've arrived to a new school with very little language. I think that a lot of the things we talk about with students who are non-native speakers but were born here could actually relate to anybody whether they're Mm. non-native speakers or not. So if we take just this issue of students who've arrived um, I think it's very overwhelming to be put into a school that can often be quite loud, quite big you don't know anybody and you don't know the language. So that's why I think a lot of students have thrived in the past by being in a separate place but then they do miss out on the other opportunities. And it means we as schools and communities don't necessarily always take the responsibility we should. Actually, I think I wouldn't want to miss out on the diversity that we get by having those students be part of our community as well. So there's lots of schools who do great things. And one of the things we've done is students do have, as soon as they arrive, withdrawal for one hour every day. First lesson of the day is always um, with the same teacher in a specific room that's also open at break, before school, after school and at lunchtime. So they get to know one member of staff very well. They do develop the English skills, but they're still in the other lessons the rest of the time. And it's that uh, that in-between experience. The other thing we do is we use software to teach uh, a lot of the English skills that parents can access at home. So we've tried as much as possible to get licences for parents and the students can do it at home. And that really helps their parents to get involved as well. Now, it's not a perfect solution. There are problems with it. But at least we're picking up on some of the advantages and disadvantages of both sides and we can adapt and move with it. So I think more exploration of that approach would really help.
1: Uh, And then this gentleman at the end of the line there. (coughs) And then this will have to be the last one, I'm afraid, so... Hold yourselves together.
11: I think, Phil. um, If you you can correct me, Phil, if I've got this wrong, but uh, I thought that his comments offered uh, an analysis or a critique of um, policy over the last uh, thirty or forty years, where I think um, our focus has been in this area, whether it's uh, EAL students or it's uh, uh, Irish migrants like myself, um, where the focus has been on the affective. So. It seems to me that there's a very encouraging shift in debates as we move towards a focus on the affective is not unimportant, but the cognitive. If we start thinking about cognitive, then we're thinking about valuable educational knowledge. Now, valuable educational knowledge, and this is the difficulty that I think we're grappling with, is construed as language. It isn't that there's knowledge over there and then there's literacy over there. They are the same thing. One is the other. There isn't any way of, uh, Laura and I I, I did some work at her school, there isn't any way of mediating the uh, induction into the school unless through language. So the language is the knowledge. Now, Lee made the point that we have lost any focus on understanding knowledge about language in higher education and the work that Lee's doing in Birmingham and uh, if Jane Knapp, May correct me, but the work in Bedford is informed by 35 years of scholarly uh, academic uh, work and um, uh, professional development, uh, which began in Sydney with Jim Martin's genre based pedagogy and Michael Halliday's functional grammar. It seems to me that if we start moving language, uh, knowledge, or we begin to understand the relationship between language and knowledge, then we can deal with the cognitive. And it doesn't mean to say that we uh, ignore the affective too.
1: Right. That's that's certainly something to think about during coffee, which is now. Um, (laughs) Coffee will take place in the Rutherford catering suite downstairs, where I think many of you have been. There are question sheets in your delegate packs. Please continue to. I've already got some here, which I'm going to read out later. Viewers at home, help yourself to a coffee. And we'll see you (laughs) back here at 2.45. Thank you.
0: This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.